Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry, and this is Frank Pelican. And tonight we are bringing to you the Frank's top five alien movies. And by alien movies, we do not mean the franchise Alien. We were just talking about movies that involve aliens. Um, Frank, I want to ask you first: Are you a particular fan of this genre at all? I don't know. I'm not a huge science fiction fan in general. Um, I usually find science fiction movies to be a little too boring maybe I don't know like they get to they fall too in love with the science behind like the story and I think it kind of weighs it down so I tend to enjoy alien like movies that have science fiction themes that are more that's sort of just like a backdrop to the movie as opposed to being like the crux of the movie or maybe like they don't even explain the science fiction element of it which a lot of the movies on this list um, I think certainly fit that that description um, I like the idea of aliens. Like I, there's aside from these five, there's definitely movies I really enjoy that involve aliens. But I don't find it to be a particularly. I don't. I don't have some huge like hope that there's intelligent life in the universe. It's not mm-hmm. something that particularly like it's interesting, but it's not something that I obsess over or particularly like. I don't know. Focus on. I guess. Do you think that elements the unknown is why people like movies involving aliens and stuff like that so much? I think sometimes. Um, for instance, like a movie that's probably surprising is not on this list is something like Close Encounters, mm-hmm. which is you know generally like regarded as a pretty like you know I guess like seminal film from like the eighties or whatever. I'm certainly a big. I mean, it's one of my favorite probably. And and I enjoy it, but I just don't really care. Like it's not something that. It doesn't suck me in with its sense of wonder, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know what that is or what that says. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe I'm more interested in things like on this planet rather right. than like outside of it. But I can understand like people, you know, we have a friend that's really deeply invested in the idea of like the cosmos and what's out mm-hmm. there. And, and that's interesting. I mean, I like seeing pictures of space and like right. from the Hubble Space Telescope and the satellites that go out past like like the recent pictures from Saturn or wherever it was. I mean, that's that's pretty fascinating, but just not not entertaining. Like it's more like on an intellectual level, it's interesting. Not on like an entertainment level. Mm-hmm. Usually, when I'm watching movies, I'm first and foremost looking to be like entertained in some capacity. Yeah. Oh, just quickly because it's not going to be on this list whatsoever. Um, what are your thoughts um, considering our age on ET? I loved ET when I was a kid. Um, I actually wanted to be an astronaut when I was really young. <clears throat> um, I think E.T. still holds up pretty well. I mean, it still is. I guess I've seen E.T. within the past probably like 12 or 13 years, maybe. Um, maybe a little longer ago than that. No, since probably in the past 10 years I've seen E.T. Um, it's charming. You know, it's got some, the, you know, the, whatever, the puppeteering effects on E.T. or like, really endearing to me. Um, I think it's a pretty decent story overall. I mean, it's, you know, Spielberg may be at his, like, best of, like, whatever, childhood whimsy-style filmmaking. Yeah. Um, I actually thought about putting E.T. on the list originally, but I don't... As much as I loved it when I was, however old I was, like, four or five when that movie came out, um, I don't really hold the same, like, nostalgic affection for it anymore. Like, again, like, I still enjoy it, and I think it's a good movie, but it doesn't have, for whatever reason, like, it doesn't hold that place in my heart. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm, 
it's not something I have a lot of nostalgia for. I mean, I was a little bit younger when it came out, but I know I saw it in the theater because mm-hmm. I know apparently I cried yeah, during too. the movie. I don't know. I, I'm assuming I don't even remember the story that well. I'll be honest. Like probably I, when ET's sick. Maybe yeah. when the when the government comes in and ET's like withering away and stuff. According to my mother, though, I cried at a lot of movies yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but <clears throat> you probably feel better if you cried a little more now. All right. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible anymore. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I had ET action figures, ET like T-shirts. There's plenty of pictures of me with like, I don't know, like all kinds of like ET merchandise. I mean, I, I loved that movie when I was young. But yeah, no, where, I remember really liking it when I was a child. Where other other movies from that time period have stayed with me, and I still think of them fondly, and probably watch them again today. Um, one of them we're going to talk about like in this list, honestly, but. Yeah. um E.T. for some reason, I just I haven't carried it with me in the same way, and I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. I mean, it's a good segue to jump into number five, I think, um, in terms of that. So, number five on your list is The Explorers, directed by Joe Dante, and uh, starring Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix. Do you want to go ahead and tell everybody just a little bit about the movie and your initial thoughts on it? So, it's a, it's an adventure movie about three, three kids, um, one of whom... Uh, is has dreams at night of this like vast like landscape that he wakes up and draws and it's basically he's drawing like a circuit board and there's this kid he goes to school with that he's friends with who's a child prodigy who's able to take his drawings and recreate them as an actual like physical circuit board mm-hmm. and it creates this <clears throat> bubble of energy that they find like doesn't obey the natural laws of physics like it's not really affected by inertia and it's for being like almost like an invisible sphere it's you know basically impervious to any kind of injury damage whatever <clears throat> so they basically create a spaceship out of an old um like uh, amusement park ride and decide that they're going to explore space with this thing because it can fly um so the child prodigy character um creates a sustainable oxygen system and they go into space. Um, they end up encountering aliens um, who turn out to be basically alien teenagers who have learned about humans and the earth through old like science fiction movies and through television. And um, They're eventually sent back um, and given this amulet that lets like all of them dream together, you know, and they're able to, like, it's implied that there's going to be further adventures, like, using this technology, and maybe they'll explore the cosmos more. Um, and that's it. Um, pretty... Not really, like, a super complex plot. I mean, it's mostly just... Realizing the technology, building the ship, leaving Earth, and then coming back to Earth after interacting with the aliens, and there's not a whole lot of... <clears throat> I don't know, like, deep character development to it, but... Um, from a nostalgia point of view, it's one of the movies that I remember the most from, like, my late childhood, I guess, so maybe when I was eight or nine. Um, <clears throat> just the sense that kids that were my age were able to, I mean, I, I love the idea of, you know, them creating this thing, like, using existing technology and their own, you know, like, innovation to make this spaceship and go on this adventure. And it really is, you know, the the first part of the movie, like the first, I would say, like 60% of this movie, 
um, leading up to when they're actually in the spaceship is just a great, you know, like childhood adventure, you know, sort of comedy, sort of in that same vein of a lot of 80s movies where there's like palpable like danger to the children, which I think has kind of like fallen off maybe since the 90s. Um, and where you feel like there's like stakes to them, like achieving this. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of the last part of the movie when they're actually in the spaceship. Um, I think it delves a little too much into maybe commentary on the idea that, you know, these kids are having this adventure because they're not sucked into MTV and popular culture. Like they're willing to like go outside of that and like actually have the urge to explore and find new things. And the teenage kids are kind of drawn to earth because of this disposable pop culture and, actually steal, like, their spaceship from their father, who then comes to get them back. Um, and you find out who the aliens have never made contact with Earth because of things like War of the Worlds, where they feel like Earth would be, like, antagonistic towards, like, extraterrestrials. Um, but really, like, for a movie I, I watched probably, like, five or six times when I was a kid, and I've seen a couple times since then. I think I bought it on DVD at some point. Um, the really great scenes in it. Uh, Ethan Hawke and um, River Phoenix first roles, yeah, um, and really good performances by two you know kids that would eventually go on to become, well, in one case like a moderately accomplished actor, and in the other like an actor with a huge amount of potential that just ended up yeah. you know like dying. But um, really, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's a that's pretty similar, um, honestly, to Peter Travers. Um, like the, your your kind of take on the movie and like you know like the mixed feelings you have a little bit about the when they actually get into space. Yeah. Um, Travers, you know, talks about like you know when they get into space um, and they encounter like the aliens that and and that they're that the aliens are fanatics for fifties TV fifties TV. He says the joke is funny, but the effect is a downer for the boys. And for that matter, the kid and all of us, by exchanging the wonder of space myth for the earthbound message that TV isn't good for kids, explorers may prove too clever for its own good. Yeah, because the general idea is that <clears throat> the alien teenagers have the technology to send the dreams to, um, shit. I guess that's the, the River Phoenix character is the one that plays, the one that has the dreams. Yes. Um, so they're sending these dreams to them, and the idea that they want these like like humans that are similar age to them to come into outer space to visit them because they're afraid to go to earth themselves or they're not allowed to or whatever um so it's it i don't know if downer is the right word but it's just he liked the movie by the way i mean i mean it's it's a little too like heavy-handed commentary mm -hmm. and in a way that it's done almost to be, like, condescending to the target audience of, like, kids. And I don't know if it necessarily comes off as condescending, but the idea is a little, like... It's like Joe Dante saying, like, you need to peel yourself away from the television and get out and do things, but doing that through the medium of somebody sitting in a theater and watching a movie for, you know, 90-some minutes. Right. <clears throat> and again, like, I I did not see this movie in the theater. Um, I just rented it, like, on a whim. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it uh, when it when I was a kid and I like I fell in love with it especially that first part um, there's actually a scene like it's a really minor scene but maybe the most memorable to me where um, Phoenix and a uh, hawk 
are talking to each other via, um, like, World War II or Vietnam War era walkie-talkies. And they're sitting on their roofs, like, sharing ideas. Yeah. And just the idea of, like, these two kids who have, like, no real power in the adult world, like, sort of, like, pulling themselves out and having this communication. And, I don't know, it just always seemed, like, really, like, a romantic, not romantic in, like, the like romance sense but like romantic in the general sense of like the romance of adventure and the romance of like leaving like your boring life as a kid and like going mm-hmm. on you know having these like journeys and exploring and like creating things and just kind of like being able to get away and I know that like my friends and I always talked about you know like wanting to build things and build like forts and figure out ways to build like go-karts and stuff and we never did it but I mean this movie like, showing that these people, like, actually did do those things. I mean, it was kind of a... There was a lot of, um, like, wish fulfillment there, I guess, for me as yeah. a kid, so... Yeah, I, I was just sitting here thinking about Joe Dante and his filmography. He actually... He doesn't do it again with kids, I don't think. What's... I, I don't remember Small Soldiers. What is... Do you remember that movie? I think Small Soldiers is a good movie. Is, is that is that a... Is that, a, is that kids? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Okay. So he does do it again, but um, he does it with um, like man children, because he does it in the Burbs and he does it in um, Inner Space. Yeah, like you know, it's like grown men like almost going on an adventure, like you know, but they're you know, they're children at heart, like trying to find something to do to like fill their, <clears throat> you know, what they feel is their pointless lives. So it's definitely a theme I think, like in a lot of his work, is this idea of like childhood adventure to some degree. Well, it's the same thing in the Gremlins movies too. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, what's yeah. his name? The kid, the main character of the Gremlins, yeah, is kind of like in a state of arrested development in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. I mean, the first movie legitimately because he's like the small town, whatever. Uh, what is he, a banker or something? Like that? Yeah, he works at the bank. Yeah. Um, and having to deal with these like nightmarish creatures, but in like a a comedic way, I guess, yeah. and then even more so, like to a more ridiculous extreme in the second movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Dante's a weird dude because <clears throat> I don't know that he necessarily gets the credit he deserves for being as good of a director as he is. Yeah. Especially with his ability to kind of mix, like, an all ages idea with some pretty adult themes. I mean, because mm-hmm. Gremlins is not. Like a children's movie, really. no. Even though I mean, I everybody know, saw. Like, I, I, I yeah. saw it when I was. I watched it, you know, twenty times as a child. Yeah, probably. like I was yeah. seven, maybe when Gremlins came out, or eight. Yeah. And I saw Gremlins, yeah, like uh, probably a dozen times as yeah, a kid. I've right. seen Gremlins maybe even like a dozen times since. Okay. Gremlins two, which I love. Like I saw Gremlins two in the theater. Yeah. Um, and there's some really violent stuff in that movie, mm-hmm. but it's like it's a different time then too. Sure. Really, like, you could. Yeah. You. <clears throat> I think the only genre really where the same thing happens now is in cartoons, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network both have cartoons that are ostensibly for children, but also are appealing to adults. And so it works in the same way. Um, but I think a lot of stuff that's made for kids in terms of films does not work for adults because it's so it's so cloying in the way it's done, or it's yeah. so like... I don't know, just not interesting. Um, the Rodriguez movies, the Shark Boy and Lava Girl and um, right. yeah. Spy Kids, Spy those Kids, movies. Yeah. I mean, he, like, I appreciate the fact that he's making those movies for a child audience, mm-hmm. but they're so overtly cartoonish that they're not enjoyable right. as an adult. I mean, maybe from, like, a purely 
nostalgic point of view of like watching like Looney Tunes or something. But even mm-hmm. the Looney Tunes have some like I don't know, like higher philosophical ideals than the mm-hmm. like, I don't know, Spy Kids. True. So true. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I got. Yeah, I don't think Dante gets enough credit. Honestly, I mean, I, the Burbs. I mean, it's a subjective, like you know, thing from childhood. But I mean, I the Burbs is one of my favorite comedies of the '80s. Like, I absolutely love that movie. Um, I, I could watch it like at any point. And the Burbs is actually probably the the, the best. The Burbs and Gremlins, like in like both hands, are the best encapsulation of Dante as like a young director when he's doing horror movies like Piranha yeah. and The Howling and stuff. Right. Um, and then Dante, like, as a, basically, like, a children's film director, um, because I think the Burbs, like, I saw the Burbs when I was pretty young, and I enjoyed it, um, and I can, I still enjoy the Burbs, I don't know how long it's been, like, in the past decade I've watched it, um, with my son, but it's still an enjoyable movie, um, but yeah, I don't know, like, for a guy that, like, I don't really think gets much credit as being, like, one of the great directors. Like, he's certainly not someone that I don't think you think of. No, really. absolutely not. Um, definitely falls within, like, the better directors of, like, family movies yeah. of the 1980s. Yeah. I mean, I'd put him with, like, Spielberg. I'd put him with John Hughes in terms of, like, his filmography for that decade especially. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, my other question to you about this, because you've already kind of expressed your kind of concerns, you know, yeah. um, about the about the movie. Uh, what did you think just quickly of Flight of the Navigator in comparison to something like The Explorers? I honestly don't remember Flight of the Navigator too yeah. much. Because, um, like, the, if, like you, this movie for you is Flight of the Navigator for me. I think maybe I've seen Flight of the Navigator once. Mm-hmm. I don't really have any memory of it. Um, there was a couple other movies, and I, I can never find them. They were, like, Disney direct-to-video movies that were similar to this. Um, not the same idea specifically about, like, flying and whatever um but things like um like war games and cloak and dagger and um again there's a couple of disney direct-to-video things that were out there in that time um that are just about like a child being like kind of thrust into an adult's world and having to survive and use their wits and then i guess like the natural successor to that idea is you know the home alone movies um like a decade later but i don't know i mean i would watch play the navigator again is that like some experimental, like fighter plane or something, or what? What happened? That no, serious. Um, no, I know the government like ends up like they want the technology. I think. I think it just ends up happening that somehow he ends up finding it in some way, hmm. like through accident, and ends up basically kind of creating a relationship with the ship. Like the, the the thing, whatever it is, if it's yeah. AI or alien, I can't remember that controls the ship. I just remember the eye coming out and like I do remember around. that. Yeah. Um, and like he developed like a friendship with it, and um, the government's tracking him down. I have not seen that movie probably since I would say nineteen eighty seven. Like yeah. I mean, it's but probably I watched it. Here. I watched it a number of times. I know, like when I was a kid, and um, you know, it's it's the same kind of. I haven't seen it, but it's like still having this positive nostalgic feelings for it. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't think I don't think there's anything really like in terms of criticism of this that you know. There's Dave Kerr being extremely negative um, about the movie. Uh, although I mean, he kind of agrees with you. Is like he sees Dante as being cynical. Um, like in terms of like the the message kind of of that movie, um, 
He says, Dante's cynicism ultimately carried the day over Spielberg's piousness and gremlins on Explorers remains a hopelessly schizophrenic film, obscenely eager to compromise its own originality. Um, <clears throat> uh, so he's taking a more kind of heavy-handed, I think, yeah, approach to... You, you can't be that high-minded about it. Not I mean, I, again, right. like, the... <laughs> if it's cynicism, it's only cynicism about, like, the loss of innocence of, like, childhood, I guess, in the 1980s, which, I mean, maybe that's true. I don't know. Sure. But, like, it's definitely not a cynical movie. It's right. 100% like a, <clears throat> a positive, yeah. hopeful film. Yeah. I mean, it's just another one of Dave Kerr's, yeah. you know, he's wrong. You know, idiotic opinions. I mean, every once in a while he gets one right. I find it interesting that um, critic scores are seventy seven percent, which made sense, but um, audience scores were sixty seven percent, which I found really interesting. That it, you don't usually see that. It's usually the opposite, where the audience scores are higher than the critic scores a lot of times. And um, yeah, for especially for a kids movie, I, I thought it was like a little low. Overall, I mean, I don't know that I. It definitely was not a movie that I shared with my friends, in terms of like my affection for it. Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was a very private experience for me, and in, in the opposite way that like, the Indiana Jones movies or Star Wars or Goonies, where you would you were talking about those things at school, like the next weekend after sure. you saw them. Like, I don't know that I ever shared my. My affection for explorers with anyone. Yeah, it was just something that I like to rent, and I would rent occasionally. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number four on the list. Number four on your list is the Rocky Horror Picture Show, nineteen seventy-five, directed by Jim Sharman. You know, this is a cult classic, so most people probably at least know of it. You know, starring Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, and Barry Bostwick, Richard O'Brien as Riff Raff. Rotten Tomatoes has it at eighty percent from critics. Um, I want to briefly kind of go over the plot of this and explain why you're feeling towards it. So Brad and Janet are a newly engaged couple. They break down, um, seek help from this like gothic mansion in the woods, which turns out to be inhabited by a bunch of sexually liberated like freaks, I guess. Um, Brad and Janet are like a button down, like middle American, like white collar couple. <clears throat> they get like perverted, I guess. I don't know if perverted, but they like their minds get expanded to like accept yeah. um, different things. Turns out that um, the people that live there, like Frankenfurter, who's the mad scientist, Riff Raff and um, Magenta are his like accomplices. They're all aliens from mm-hmm. the planet of Transylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely like a love letter to fifties sci fi. Um, from the opening, I guess, like, intro song, like, throughout the movie, um, really in love with, like, the idea and the symbolism of the 1950s, but in a way that's, like, subversive, um, dealing with homosexuality and, you know, the idea that you don't have to be monogamous, um, the idea of people, like, being accepted for who they are, um, and that you can basically be anything you want to be, like, as long as you, like, believe that you can be that thing. Um, one of my favorite musicals of all time, like I love pretty much every song, uh, in the movie version. Um, one of the movies that I sort of equate with my, and I like maturation or coming of age, um, just in terms of when I first saw the movie and when I fell in love with the movie, it was kind of at like a, sort of at like 
the middle onset of puberty and kind of when I was like first like dating girls and um, I had gone away to like a writer's camp for this a week in the summer and everyone there who was older was really into it and they introduced me to it and I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that, so again, like a lot of the things that I'll list in a top five is not necessarily an objective top five. It's almost always subjective based on like my nostalgic love for something, but I mean, I've watched this movie at least like seven or eight times um, over the course of my life, maybe more than that. Um, and I really, like, I think it always holds up. Um, I've just watched it in the past couple of years and it still is really enjoyable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's got really good performances. I think it's paced really well. Um, I think that it's got some really, like, dark, but also, like, endearing humor to it. Um like, even these characters that are kind of, like, monstrous. Like, Frankenfurter is not a good character, but ultimately ends up being maybe kind of a hero, but maybe kind of still, like, a villain, and maybe just... I mean, he's he's Dr. Frankenstein, right? And Rocky is his, like, the, the creature. But you sort of kind of understand, like, why Frankenfurter maybe, like, acts the way he acts and why he kills Eddie, which is probably the most monstrous thing that he does. And I don't know. Um, but definitely from like a purely nostalgic point of view, like I have so many good memories associated with this movie and like, it just, it'll always, I think be special to me in terms of just what I remember and like the, like memories of the songs trigger. And I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, all the performances are really strong in this movie. Yeah. I, I mean, like Curry's phenomenal. Like yes. Boswick and Sarandon are really good as Brad and Janet. Richard O'Brien's probably like it's my favorite character. Like you know, yeah. probably in it and uh, as Riff Raff. And but I mean, he of course and he, Brian wrote it right. The original, yeah, the original stage, stage play, production. right? Um, you know, so I mean, I uh, of course, I mean, I guess he knows that character really well. But he's definitely like you know, probably like my favorite performance in it. But Meatloaf's really good. I yeah. mean, like it's um, for such a for such brief role. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. like all those characters, right. even just people that you never even Magenta and um, Columbia, Columbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even characters that never really have any like dialogue, like the weirdos that are dancing in the yeah, background yeah, scenes. I mean, there's a. It never feels low budget, but it feels like decidedly counterculture. If that makes sense. Where some movies you'll watch and it's got this really like grimy, low budget feel to it, and that kind of makes it feel like dangerous or that you're not maybe not supposed to see it. And when I was a kid, you know, growing up, like we live in a rural part of Maryland, <clears throat> which is definitely a little more progressive now than it used to be, but was not progressive in like the early 1990s when I first saw this movie. Mm-hmm. So seeing a movie that openly talks about, you know, homosexuality and free love and the idea that you know a man can dress up like a woman and still be a strong like like alpha male character right because mm-hmm. that's what frankenfurter sure. is um it really is like you, you feel like it's something you're not supposed to be watching and especially back then like that was right. kind of the feeling that you had for it but it has such high production values i mean even though some of it's like kitschy it's kitschy because it is like you know, paying homage to the 1950s, like, science fiction movies. Like, it doesn't need to have amazingly impressive special effects because that's not the point. But mm-hmm. it feels like it's it's beautifully shot. You know, the cinematography is really nice. Um, the colors in it are all really good. The direction for 
being like a musical with dancing and singing is um is really spot on. I don't know, it's just a <clears throat> it's just a really good movie and it does deal with the idea that I don't know, like like <laughs> like the aliens, I guess, whatever it is they're trying to do. Um, Frankenfurter was even too much for them, and that's why they got to, you know, take him back. Sure. I mean, I, I haven't thought every single aspect through, but I mean, my my reading's always been that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's speaking about the times to some degree, is that, um, that Riff Raff and Magenta, right, is mm-hmm. who he's with, um, that they're, that they're kind of like the squares in some way that, you know, Frankenfurter, Frankenfurter is the excess of the 1970s and, you know, to the point where it's like he kills the 50s greaser, yeah. you know, I mean, um, and he's kind of like that excess that's like one too far, you know, which I think is a phrase that's actually that, in the movie. Yeah, that, that he used to be in love with because that's the whole point is that he right. froze. Right, He froze Eddie because he was in love with Eddie. Sure. Yeah, and, he, and he's still in love with the movies of that time period yeah. too, of the fifties and sixties, and um, you know that's what he like reference, you know that's what he references in the song at the end and everything, and it's like he's reenacting uh, like the the King Kong reenactment yeah. at the end and on the RKO radio tower. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I always took it as he's the excess of the nineteen seventies that um, when you go too far, there's always going to be people that kind of you know. So whether he's a hero or not, I think is up for debate according to the viewer. You know, I mean, like he's he's a hero if like you think pushing the boundaries of something like that is okay, and I think he's a villain if you. Um, I think maybe Riffraff might be partially the hero mm, to, really? for, to some people's perspective. Yeah, I'm saying I could see like depending. It's like a Rorschach test to some degree. I think. I mean, you know, whether Frank- whether if you think Frank needs to die. Even if you don't like Riff Raff, but it's like, if you don't want to go that far, if you think that Frank needs to die, then it's like, it's saying something about you. And it's like, so I, I think in that way, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test about how you feel about people that are pushing boundaries. But he's also kind of like a messiah figure too, in that way, because even upon like, you know, the, the end of the movie, when he's like taken away, he still leaves Brad and Janet like changed. I mean, mm-hmm. they're... Definitely, like, liberated and awakened. Like, sure. writhing around on the ground or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, yeah, like I said, I haven't thought it through completely, but I, I've always had this impression that, especially with the Eddie character, that there's something going on there between, like, this excess of the 70s that was happening, late 60s, 70s, and, you know, like, the liberation that's going on, yeah. that kind of, like, manchismo of the 1950s greaser. Um, and that dichotomy has always put me in the mind that there's something going on with, like, things going too far, yeah. you know, when it comes to liberation. Um, and it's interesting because... But, I mean, like, you know, Richard O'Brien is, like, you know, still... Um, I think he's fully transitioned now, maybe? If I, if I, I think so. I like, really don't know anything about him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, he's transitioned now. Um, you know, he's in, what, a 70s or 80s, probably, he's by this point. So, um, but I think he's fully transitioned. So, um, I don't know. I'd be interested to... To hear that discussion, like, of what he was thinking at that time. I don't know that I ever would want to know that. Honestly. Yeah. Like, this is... This is a movie Brandy where... Brandy and I have had that discussion. She doesn't want to know either. This is a movie where, like, it means so much to me personally. Yeah. It's my Jean-Paul Sartre, like, argument that... 
Yeah. Like, I love it so much that I want to know absolutely nothing about its creators or any of its intent. Right, because you found out he's an asshole, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> terrible human. Yeah. And they're like, kind of like colors when you're reading his books. Sure. It's kind of hard for me to go back and read, like, Sartre now. But in the same way, like, I... I have my own feelings about this movie, and I think that's enough. Like, I like to talk about it, and I think it's interesting. Like, yeah. I think you're probably right in some some ways about what you're saying. But, um, I don't know. It's just... But you don't want to hear it because it's special to you. Yeah. I get it. I mean, that's the difference between what we were talking about last week, is I think I'm probably colder and more distant when it comes to like viewing movies so yeah and, yeah, I, and yeah. I and i love the music in this like i love the story like i love those characters i mean when i was drunk last week i was making david listen to songs from it on my phone but i mean um so i mean i still have a, like an emotional connection to yeah. it but like i can kind of suppress that completely and just it's funny that you brought up that conversation last week about the movies because i was thinking about it again this week and i was thinking how like just from my own perspective and why I love movies so much is that, you know, like you watch a television series and you watch it over the course of, you know, weeks and months and sometimes years even, and you change as you watch that show. So you're evolving like as you see it. Yeah. Um, so how you, the person you are when you start watching Lost is not the person you are when you finish watching Lost like in its original run, right? Sure. But in the scope of a film, like, it's such a small moment in your life that is directly linked to that one moment. Yeah. Like, just like an hour and a half, two hours out of a day. That I think that, to me, like, that's why film has so much more of an impact on me, like, emotionally and personally, because it is, like, so singular of, like, a Sure, because experience. it could very easily become a marker, like, in your in your timeline at yeah. that point, because it's a singular moment and event. <clears throat> it's, it's easy to put... A connection to a time, a place, a feeling, you know, who your friends were at that time, sure. and all those kind of things, and what was going on in your life. So it's very yeah. easy because it's a one-time event to market. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Plus, a movie's either good or bad, typically. Sure. Like, you either enjoy a movie or you don't enjoy a movie. Whereas, you know, like, Lost, again, as an example, Lost is kind of a roller coaster for me because there's, like, super highs from watching that show and, like, mm-hmm. some really, like, low moments, mm-hmm. like, episodes. Yeah. And so... It's, Mostly a moment, Kate, yeah. <laughs> Poor Kate. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So anyway, yeah. So what about your um couple of your favorite scenes in this? Um, I love the there's a light in the Frankenstein place like introduction to um to all the characters really. Um, obviously like your introduction to Frankenfurter, the sweet transvestite is like fantastic. Um, maybe like the most iconic moment in that movie is is that. Um, the Eddie scene, you know, coming out of like the deep freeze or whatever. Um, I really love that song too, the Hot Patootie Bless mm-hmm. My Soul song. Um, actually the scene that I re- probably, that, so it's, it's two riffraff scenes and it kind of bookends the movie and it's the riffraffs like soliloquy or like verse or whatever, um, in there's light at the Frankenstein place when he's in the window, like looking mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, and then Riff Raff's verse at the end when he's like revealing that they're actually like taking over the mission and yeah. like those two things I don't know it, I guess it's like O'Brien's voice maybe and yeah, it's it like is. his like craven like hunched yeah. like posture and delivery and so good the way that like he's got almost this like marionette movement to his body like the way that like his limbs like will jerk and freeze like mm-hmm. suddenly and 
I don't know. Like I, I love that character so much. Um, I mean, you, you said that. Like, even though like there's so many like big characters in the movie, and Frankenfurter particularly, like I think Riff Raff kind of steals the show for me. His facial expressions, his movements, the way he dances, his delivery, like all of it, almost like sardonic and bored, kind of like the entire time. But still, like this underpinning of like seething. I don't know, like lust, maybe, or I don't know. Yeah. yeah. What do you think the weaknesses of it are? Mm. I don't know. I don't know that it has any like glaring weaknesses. I mean, I guess from different perspectives, you could say there's a lot of weaknesses depending on what you find interesting. Like to me, maybe midway through the movie, like maybe the creature of the night segment is a little too long. I don't know. I don't know why I said that, but just like, I kind of just thought it like the thing at the end when he's on the RKO tower, like goes on a little too long Mm. for me. Is the creature of the night thing the um is that the scene where like he's going to different bedrooms and stuff like that? Or well, that it's the... where um, Frankenfurter ends up with Brad, right? And okay, Rocky yeah. ends up with Janet. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. And it's the superimposition yeah. of the different faces above, right? Yeah, like yeah, her yeah. Like, singing the creature of the sure, night. Right, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, okay. Um, and like again, like I I love that song. I think it's a great mm-hmm. scene. But just when you said that, the first thing that came to mind was like, yeah, yeah maybe that's like yeah. 30, 40 seconds right. too long. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, any final thoughts about Roger? No, I mean, if you've never seen it and you enjoy musicals, I think it's worth watching, especially if you're not, like, uptight and homophobic, <laughs> I guess. Right. Yeah. I also, I, I mean, again, like, That's I've... a pretty big caveat, though. Yeah, well, I mean, but I've seen, like, you know, so again, we grew up in an area where, you know, like, racial slurs and homosexual slurs were, like, completely accepted, like, on every level. And I've seen people that were dyed in the wool, you know, like alpha male macho guys that would never even like entertain the idea of like gay people being okay, yeah. like saying sweet transvestite. Yeah. So maybe there is some element that kind of like, because it's entertainment and because it's so campy, maybe it can be kind of a bridge for some people that aren't mm-hmm. quite like as open-minded to accept the fact that people are just who they are, really. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, which is interesting. I mean, because you look at like whenever... I didn't go the last time they did Rocky Horror at the college, but um, I guess a few years ago I went, and I mean, it was pretty packed. I mean, it was, uh, of course, you have the certain element that would really be into Rocky Horror that was there, but I mean, you had a lot of uh, diversity, and it was a pretty full house a few years ago. And, um, like, so it does show you the change in, you know, 20 plus, in 20 some years, you know, in terms of the county. So there's one negative then that doesn't necessarily relate to this movie specifically, but. It was really difficult to be a fan of this movie when I was a kid because of the association with people that were super fans of this movie. Right. And yeah. I like I knew people that like I knew a girl in high school who shaved her head so she would look like Columbia mm. so she could go to the midnight showings and she lived in like a different like town from where we live, but she would go to the midnight showings in the town that she lived in. And she altered her entire persona. And, like, I, I mean, I, I get it, I guess, but... You're fine trying to find identity of that age. Yeah, it's yeah. just, like, you... There were, there were people that were not... That did not have fond associations with people that enjoyed that movie. So you kind of had to sure. keep, it, keep it a little secret. What's interesting is Ebert doesn't really write his review... Or maybe it's a second review he writes. I don't know. I think, it, I think it's probably his first one. He doesn't write until 2004. Um, and he gives it two and a half stars. And... 
But I mean, a majority of like that review seemed to be um, of the actual analysis or critique um, beyond just describing it was directed towards the midnight showings and that yeah. culture. Um, you know, really when it came down to it, the only thing that he said about it is that, um, as for the movie, it's, um, it's no better than it ever was viewed on video simply as a movie without the midnight sideshow. It's cheerful, silly, and kind of sweet and forgettable. Um, yeah, I don't but, so, yeah I, and I, right, of course, I completely disagree with that, but, um, but he spent a lot of the time, and I think that, what I'm saying is I think, like, that midnight show aspect of it, um, ruins it. I mean, that's, people. That, that's the trap with The Room, kind of, right? In that, like... Like, The Room is... Objectively, one of the worst films... Right. That's ever gained any kind of, like, call following. Like, even stuff like Plan 9... Sure. There's some artistry there. Whereas The Room is, like, so devoid of any sure, artistry. Sure, But it's gained such relevance because of The Midnight Show. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know that you could critique that movie based on the masochistic like fan base that loves to go and watch it and laugh at like the failures of whatever his name is Tommy Wiseau sure just in the same way that like I don't want to judge this movie based on you know the rabid fan base that goes and throws rice and squirts water absolutely absolutely, because I'm not a fan of that fan base and I've I've been to those things and they're fun you know and like there is like definitely a sense of community there but it's almost like a cult community yeah. which I guess maybe is why it's a cult movie quote right, unquote. Yeah. Um, but yeah. just on its own it's a fantasy. yeah there's a lot of right yeah there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on and that yeah. stuff but I mean I think it's the same reason I don't like those experiences um, it's probably the same reason I don't like playing games online with other people mm-hmm. like it's uh, you know strangers and stuff it's because I I just don't have that in me like yeah. I, the things movie viewing like besides like a theater and being in that setting is a very singular experience for me um like it's fine other people being around like in a theater because that's the situation but i i don't like the interactive you know yeah. like aspects of those kind of things so um okay um let's move on to the third movie on the list which is um the man who fell to earth um 1976 uh starring david bowie uh, it's a 82 percent of Rotten tomatoes from critics a 69 percent from the audience there's another uh, gap there i can just interesting. That gap. yeah um, so, um, and I'll start off by saying that Dave Kerr, the only thing that I wrote down is he called it an empty thing, <laughs> this movie. So given that context, can you explain this empty thing? He's um, right in a lot of ways. To, to, to everybody. Um, well, in that specific way. Um, so Bowie is an alien mm-hmm. who comes to earth to get the technology to bring water back to his dying planet to save his family. Um, he brings technology that it doesn't exist on Earth. He uses that to gain a huge fortune and with the idea that he's going to build a spacecraft to bring this water back. Um, ends up becoming like a drunk, basically. Uh, sort of falls apart. Um, pretty, pretty depressing movie in a lot of ways. Um... I mean, it's Nicholas Rogue, who's, like, one of my favorite directors from the 1970s, um, who definitely is big on looking at, like, the human condition and its failings. Um, I don't know. I mean, empty? Yeah. Like, it's a guy who doesn't belong in this world trying to seem like he belongs in the world. 
Um, the Thomas Jerome Newton character, uh, that's Bowie's character, um, falls in with a barfly, basically, like a girl who works at a hotel. She sort of corrupts him, kind of, by getting him to, like, fall in love with the idea of, like, drinking and... I don't know. I mean, it's... There's a lot of commentary on this movie on, to me, how we as humans make everything worse. Like how we take something that's pure and simple and bring it down to like a very base and low level. Um, but then again, also that like maybe those things had it in them anyway, right? I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, again, Rogue is, in my opinion, like one of the masters of filming the human condition. Um, and especially like in this movie, giving this alien thing like intense humanity and sort of seeing like what humanity does to a creature that didn't have it before. Um, you know, he ends up getting like seriously injured in the end. His eyes get like kind of burned from his, like the x-rays or whatever he's exposed to. Um, he's kept, like, locked up. Um, he becomes, like, a definite alcoholic, kind of reunites with this Barfly character that was sort of his, like, innocent love at the beginning, despite, like, the alcohol and whatnot. Um, and in the end, he's not able to, you know, go home. So that's kind of depressing as well. Like, he's failed in his mission, so you have to assume that his family all died and his mm-hmm. people all died, I guess. I mean, there's, like, some flashbacks to these weird alien people like crawling across like a desert landscape and you know when he's like sadly reminiscing about him um very dusty looking movie very like i mean it's 100 percent a film from the 70s like it looks like from the 70s um probably no character that bowie was more born to play than <clears throat> almost like a human cipher like an alien from another planet um Kind of a combination of like his thin white Duke persona mixed yeah. with his Ziggy Stardust persona, yeah. yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, and I mean, Bowie was like all persona throughout this time period, so yeah, just kind of like a natural extension of that, I guess. Um, what's his name? Uh, Rip Torn, yeah, really, really good in it, like, probably the best performance in it as um, failed college science professor who sort of like latches on to Newton and um, figures out that he's an alien. Kind of like leads to his incarceration, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah, he does. Um, and Buck Henry is like the the lawyer is really good in it too. Um, but yeah, just it's it's not it, it's a movie where so like taking Rocky R out of like the whole science fiction idea, like Explorers is about using technology to like broaden your horizons and like become more than what you are. And this movie is more about that even with like this technology, you're still no better than the woman like waiting tables and drinking her gin and tonics at like nine o'clock in the morning. So, right. I don't know. I mean, Rogue is super obsessed with how sexuality influences people, how depression influences people, how like ennui like influences your life. And, you know, he does he shows all these things through a character that's not a human, you know, that's a, like a complete alien. 
and makes him honestly even like worse than human. I mean, he ends the movie as like a drunk, basically, mm-hmm. like destroyed and completely unable to complete any kind of mission that he had. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there's it's 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 like all reviewers, even whether it's negative or positive, have very mixed things to say about this movie. It seems so there's no necessarily like. Her, that was a negative review. Um, uh, the empty thing was not like a an analysis or, or or any kind of like in any way a compliment. Um, uh, Nick Pigrenton of the Village Voice calls it of questionable de- questionable depth. Mm. He says that while immortalizing Bowie's manis like exoticism, Rogue fails to connect to the longing for the family reunion that drives the plot. Domesticity is more vividly imagined as part of Earth society's sickness defied in a preposterous moment where Bowie slow-most slaps his tray of chocolate chip cookies from Clark's hands. Like her, the viewer sticks out the bad for a chance at the extraordinary. Um, and he goes on to say that Rogue's images are nearly enough reward for that. Um, so it's like, uh, Eber does the same thing where he like he talks about, like, there's moments in this movie that are just extraordinary. Um, yeah, beautiful and, film. Yeah, and like, and that... Um, it's uh, the cinematography is like so sensational uh, throughout, but there's like this. Um, Ebert criticizes it. Um, it's another two and a half star movie for Ebert, and he criticizes it as just saying that like this this like what did he say? It's a bunch of tentative sketches for a more short film that was never made. <clears throat> so I agree with the, the who was Pinkerton? The yeah, yeah, from the Village Voice. But he has it backwards, right? Like the movie's not about the reunion. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an anti-hero's journey in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, he comes to Earth to be a hero, but you never get the impression that he necessarily wanted to go back. Like, once he's there, that he doesn't really want to complete his journey, maybe. And that even at the end, when he's able, like, about to go back, I mean... Well, it's like, I think he wants to in the beginning. That's the aim, of course. I mean, but then is like... um it's almost like as you have to work for things and like, you know, daily routine takes over. Yeah. Like that just becomes your whole life. It's just the inertia, I guess. Of yeah. Like and what do people do when they become, when, you know, in that daily life? It's like they, 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 they hook up with the waitress, you know, they drink a lot. I mean, yeah. like, it's like, I mean, it is this really grim look at like, you know, this, this, what human existence can be. But um, it fits really well with like his... His filmography from that time, you know, talking sure. about, like, Nick Rogue, in the sense that, like, you know, performance and bad timing and Don't Look Now, you know, they all have similar themes. They're all similar in that sense that there's bits of great humanity in this movie amidst, like, human detritus, basically. Like, the worst parts of being a person. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that's humanity in general, right? Like... Yeah. If you look at like anyone's life, if you filmed anyone's life, you could certainly pick out like many moments where you looked like a terrible person or you looked like sure. a you know a monster. Like you could follow us on a Saturday night and like right. I'm make like a twelve year like I'm running series. I'm absolutely on perfect on Saturday night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, a, a lot of times with these critics, I I, I feel like. Maybe I and maybe I imagine more in the in movies than what's actually there. If I like a movie a lot for some reason, I think I will say that I 
I don't think you go you're excessive about it or like you like take it to like an extreme, but you, you do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not finding anything that I don't think you can find just by watching. It, sure, right? like I'm not making up things about the movie. I'm just looking at it from a different perspective. Yeah, and to me, like this isn't a movie about. I mean, it's a movie about trying to do something and failing. Right. And like you know, you just you said it. And it's it's true. It's a movie about failing because life just you you can't escape it's almost like, like that's a good analogy like he's trying to like lift off from the gravity of this planet and it's the gravity of this mundane existence right. even though he's super wealthy and all yeah. of his inventions have made right. him like a billionaire sure <clears throat> like he's sucked down into the mud of like just being a regular person yeah. and he's never able to get out of it yeah so I don't know I mean it's interesting I wonder if Bowie's ever I, I never like looked to see if Bowie's talked about this performance at all yeah. I'd be really interested to see like why he took this role. I wonder if he, there. I mean, there had to be. He felt like some sort of connection between where he was at in his life. If, some, if I had to guess, it's probably because of, partially because of performance, because of how like fantastic Mick Jagger looks in that movie, yeah. and Nick Rogue like being the director, yeah. it probably was appealing. Yeah. I know that he really liked the book that this is based on. Yeah. Um, the book is moderately dissimilar from the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's the same idea, but there's a lot of like. The, the book is much more, I don't know what, how to say it, like introspective towards like the Thomas Newton character, whereas the movie, he's more like an enigma to you, kind of like a cipher almost in that respect. Um, and plus, I mean, here's a guy whose whole persona is that he's an alien. You know, he's Ziggy Stardust, he's Aladdin Sane, whatever, he's a man who sold the world. So, I mean, it makes sense for him to play a character that's so alien. Yeah. And he does, like, have that mantis, like, mm. like I don't know, his movements are odd and, I don't know, his body's so, like, elongated and thin and, like, pale. He definitely looks like an alien. Yeah. Um, so, um, kind of went all over the place, so I lost this. Like, are there any weaknesses, do you think, in this movie, then? That you it's a little them? long. Yeah. Um, it is a little meandering at times. Yeah. Uh, Again, like, I'm not, I, I don't mind a filmmaker, like, letting the plot kind of drift away because he's in love with, like, a visual or, like, a scene, and it doesn't necessarily have to advance the plot, especially, like, for Rogue, who, again, one of my favorite filmmakers of the 70s, um, like, it, it feels like you're watching a life sometimes with him. Like, you're watching just, like, scenes from someone's life as opposed to watching, like, a narrative-driven movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that Don't Look Now is a really good example of that. Be like You're watching, like, the disillusion of a marriage based on the death of a child <clears throat> right. with the backdrop of, like, a horror movie kind of behind sure. it that maybe sure. isn't even really a horror movie. Like, right. you never... I mean, I guess you do know at some point, but... Yeah. Um, and this is the same way. This is... You know, this is a science fiction movie. It's like, this is the day the Earth stood still. But if instead of, you know, like being set in the 50s pulp universe, it's set in like the 70s, I don't know. Like, it's it's like, this is like a side road off of like Smokey and the Bandit somewhere that this shit's occurring, right? Where like, just people in like this dusty town, like drinking themselves to death and living like a nothing life. So, and I think they're like, again, like it does meander, but I'm okay with that. Um... Bowie is maybe a little too alien sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe he's a little too nothing of a character, but then maybe that works. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, it's 
it's not one of my favorite movies of his, but it still is one of the better movies, I think, like dealing with that idea of the alien coming to Earth and interacting with humans. I mean, you asked about E.T., and like, honestly, it's the same idea, really. You know, like they sickened by their, like their exposure to humanity, just wanting to get back. But whereas E.T. like does get back to his ship, you know, like Newton is just a failure. Like he doesn't have the glowing finger to yeah. make Elliot fly him back to whatever his spaceship. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, yeah, and it's difference between seventies and eighties too. You know, I mean, I mean, it makes you feel like dirty watching it. I think sometimes. Yes. Like you 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 feel absolutely like depraved at times, or I don't even know what the word is, like debauched maybe. Yeah. Like watching scenes in this movie, but I mean, I think that's I, I think it's effective. I think that yeah, it's, absolutely, yeah. And I think that sometimes in the same way that I love horror, because yeah. you know, confronting fear is like like fear is such a primal emotion that humans face. Yeah, it definitely makes me like a lot of those old seventies television shows. I always say make me want to take a shower after yeah. I watch them. In this movie, certainly, you're watching like, like Barney that. Miller, and you just yeah, yeah, it's like feel I, like having a cigarette and a shot of gin. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but. I, I don't know that I would def, that I would necessarily recommend this movie to everyone, but I think that, like, if you know that you like seventies film and you know that you like that you're okay with it, not necessarily having a really tight narrative, I think that there's a lot of enjoyment to take out of it, and especially if you can appreciate like truly like a aesthetic visionary in terms of Rogue and the way that he films things. I think that I think it's definitely worth watching. There's a really good Criterion version of it. Um, all right, let's go ahead and move on to number two if you're ready. All right. Okay, so number two on your list, which honestly I thought might have been number one, but is um, Alien, the original from 1979, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Sigourney Weaver, Tom Scarrett, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, has a 97 on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 94 from the audience. Um, obviously like a classic sci-fi horror movie. Um, for those that haven't seen it, you just want to go through briefly, like, what it's about? A group of astronauts on a, like a, really on a mining mission, I guess, yeah. for the Wutani Corporation, uh, come upon <clears throat> what appears to be a derelict spacecraft, um, with an obvious, like, alien, like, gigantic humanoid creature in it. Um, they encounter these pods. Where one of the, when they examine them, one of the crew members gets attacked by a creature, like a lobster, crustacean-esque creature. Um, it turns out that it's, he's been kind of inseminated by this alien-like parasite. Um, he gives birth to this creature, and then it's this claustrophobic cat and mouse with the creature hunting them on the ship until Sigourney Weaver's finally able to overcome it. Um, pretty, pretty straightforward plot, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a very tight movie, very claustrophobic. Um, it's got some really good character moments in it, um, including, you know, interactions between the crew who are really just kind of like working class stiffs in a lot of ways in space. Um, which really like, there's a lot of science fiction movies that have that same element. And a lot of the aliens movies have that element too, where it's not like professionals that are dealing with these things. It's, or people that are like trained to deal with these threats. It's just like regular people that are thrust into these like terrifying situations. Um, really well directed, uh, very 
tense and scary, especially the first time you see it, especially when you don't know where the scares are coming from. Uh, some of the best <clears throat> set design and like creature design ever, like H.R. Geiger's Alien is maybe one of the most iconic like creatures in horror science fiction. I mean, definitely enough that it's now spanned three generations of film where aliens are still like featured in movies pretty regularly. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's it's almost almost cheating for me to pick this movie. Um, I I really love this movie, not just as like a alien movie or a science fiction movie, but just as a film in general. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, like, I absolutely love the look of the alien. I love the tightness of the camera work where you feel like, like that thing could come at you from anywhere, basically. Um, I don't know, just, just a brilliant movie. One of the first films I remember seeing where a woman was the main character and the driving force behind, like, basically saving these other men. Um, so that role reversal was was pretty interesting to me as a kid. Um, and way ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, far ahead of its time. Sigourney Weaver also, like, an amazing job in this movie is, um, you know, as in her character. Um, I just forgot. Ridley? <laughs> yeah, Ridley. Yeah. All I could think of was Ridley. Yeah. Um, inspirational to, like, all kinds of different things. I mean, spawned imitators for decades afterwards. Um, and really works well as a science fiction movie, works well as a horror movie. Um, I would call it maybe, it's my second favorite science fiction movie and one of my favorite horror movies of all time. So, I don't know. I mean, there's, I love the way that, I love 1970s and early 80s spaceship design. Like, I like the way that people putting what they consider to be futuristic versions of like computers and the way the things are designed. It's, it's just got a really almost like, I don't know what I'm looking for. Like it, it feels like the, I'm always a fan of practical effect over digital effects. And I feel like these movies and alien in particular, it feels like a lived in world. Like it feels like it's a utilitarian vehicle and you actually can kind of, sort of understand like the purpose of it and it, it's not just some fanciful spaceship or it's not like a flying saucer or whatever it, it looks like something the people that are on a job that's like just kind of a blue collar industrial job what they would be you know what they would be using um again i can't say enough for how much i love the design of the alien the sleekness of it the menace of it the fact that it's like vaguely humanoid but like insectile and Kind of combination of like an ant and a scorpion and a man, you know, and all like chitness and the extra mouth coming out. I mean, there's so much, just so much genius in that design. And it's like so immediately recognizable and so like almost like Lovecraftian in its like composition where it's like weird angles and yeah. parts that don't make sense. And I don't know, just an amazing movie. Some really like iconic scenes in it. You think Dave Kerr liked this movie? Did you review it contemporaneously? Yes. No, he didn't like it. Yeah. Um, I, I doubt Ebert liked it either. Would be my guess. Yeah, Dave Kerr. He throws a lot of shade in this. 
an empty-headed horror movie with nothing to recommend it beyond the disco-inspired art direction and some handsome and gimmicky cinematography. The science fiction trappings add little to the primitive conception, which features a rubber monster running amok in a spaceship. Director Ridley Scott relies on suspense techniques that look tired in the perils of Pauline. For the most part, things simply jump out and go boo. Under the circumstances, the allusions to Joseph Conrad and Howard Hawks seem unforgivably presumptuous. Instead of characters, the film has bodies. Some of them are lent by Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, and Yafek Otto. Um, <clears throat> which is very good shade, but I mean completely... Yeah, I think un- unnecessary. Unnecessary and really, really wrong in hindsight. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I say that to bring up the idea you said you mentioned Ebert. Um, one of the things that's I think pretty notable about this movie is the the vitriol in which it was received compared to the esteem in which it's held now. Yeah, it's the same as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Exorcist. I mean. So, and we, we've talked about this a number of times in the past, but I think it bears repeating in that I feel for a very long time, like, genre films, and especially films that were considered to be predominantly horror, critics felt like they could not hold it in any kind of esteem because why would someone want to watch it? Yeah. Like, that's the idea. It's like, it's just titillation. Like, why? Right. There's no artistic value to it. And, look, again, like, it's not an overly complex plot. Mm. I mean, it really is just about... Joseph Conrad, like, that's an interesting... Oh, he's talking about the Nostromo, like, the idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what he's referencing, I think, there. But, I mean, it's like... It's not a... I don't... Yeah. But it's... But in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a hard darkness-style thing. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. you're going into the unknown. Venture, right, venturing down the river. and yeah. It's, you know, the emptiness of space. There's no one... No one can hear you scream. Right. Right? Yeah, right. Um. So, like, I, I can see that. But... For being such a simple plot, and really it is just people find thing, thing hurts people, thing hunts people, person kills thing, basically. I mean, that's the whole plot of that movie. But you're never... It doesn't give you any time to breathe once... Mm -hmm. And it... Once the chestburster scene happens, like, there's a little bit of time between when the face hugger implants... um, you know, the seed, and then when the between that and the chest burster, where it's it's tense and it's ominous, but it's sort of like a lull in that. Mm-hmm. So it's like spike in action, lull. But then after that point, it doesn't ever like let you go. Like it holds you. And I think that it builds enough I think it builds enough interest in the universe. I mean to the point where, you know, for two decades afterwards people obsessed over you know, like the what do they call it? Like the Ancient astronaut or whatever, I think is what it was always right. referred to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is this thing? And then to, you know, where they had to make like two questionably, you know, like merited movies to explain like what that thing is. Yeah. Um, but like that was one of my favorite things. And I was like full disclosure, super obsessed with the aliens and the predators universe in my teens. Um, Dark Horse Comics put out a series of Alien vs. Predator comics, and I owned all of them. I had a bunch of alien artwork. Um, Like, I loved to, like, draw the aliens' characters. I was pretty obsessed with this universe. And the idea that the shared universe between this and the Predator universe, when Predator was just Predator 1 and 2. Um, 
But in this brief period of time, and how long is this movie? Like 90-some minutes, I guess, maybe? Maybe 100 yeah. minutes? Maybe. In that time, like, it builds such a... Such a deep amount of mystery of things that it never even explains to you. Like, what these creatures are, where they come from, why they were there, you know. It's, it's really, like, one of the more horrific ideas of just random happenstance leading to like, the death of this entire group of people just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. <clears throat> you know, I think that in the way that certain movies... Like, in the way that something like Creature from the Black Lagoon works as a horror movie because they're not going there to look for the Gill Man. You know, he just lives in this place that they are. And he's not doing anything but what his, you know, whatever, like, natural imperative is to do. And it's the same thing with the alien. Like, the alien's not a villain, necessarily. It's just a force of nature. Right. It's just a thing that's trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And in that way, like, it makes it even more horrific than anything else because it's not, like, predetermined. It's not, like, comprehensible to the human mind. It's like... I mean, if there was, like, giant ants and an ant came after you, like, that ant's going to try and, like, pick looking, you up. And looking at it that way, I actually can see, I guess, the Conrad comparison a little bit more is... Because Kurtz isn't a human anymore. Like Kurtz, Kurtz, yeah. is, Kurtz has become nature. He's become the beast, you know, that is defined by, or is created by nature. Sure. Like, I mean, that's like, that's a pretty common, I don't know, like fear that I think like artists struggle with over the yeah. course of like the entirety of whatever, like human creation. Um, like Lord of the Flies is the same idea. Like what happens when like it's just like it's it's the rationality of humanity trying to fight against the bestial nature of something right and like this thing is like the ultimate beast in the sense that it's like an apex predator it's got so many ways that it like even if you damage it in some way like if you go to kill it like it's blood can kill you so even in death it can still cause your death yeah i mean that's pretty horrifying and in this movie more than any other sequel or spinoff from the alien franchise you know it's it's more apparent like it's not so you and i talked about this when we first talked about this list like why it's not aliens instead of alien mm-hmm. and i know that there's a lot of people especially like among our group of friends that actually like aliens more and i think aliens is a as a as a movie I, I i'm one of those people in the sense that in a movie that i'd rather sit down and watch so i feel that aliens is a pure science fiction action movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some horror element to it, but when there's... No, I agree. So many aliens, like, it kind of loses, you know... Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're just, like, you know, even though the aliens are kind of overrunning them, like, these Marines are still, like, blowing them away. Yeah. Like, large numbers of them, like, killing them. Yeah. And there's a lot less tense horror in that movie, whereas this movie, it's just one of the things, you know... And that one thing is enough to wipe out this whole group of people. And again, like to my previous point, like these are people that are unprepared yeah. for this menace. Like they don't know. And an and alien can get away with it because it's the first in the series and it's the unknown. So it can be scary the first time. I don't yeah. think you can repeat the movie again as aliens. I think it has to go the action route. Sure. And I think that aliens is a worthy successor to mm-hmm. this movie. Especially in the idea that the Wutani Corporation wants to like take the aliens and study them. Right. Um, one of the best, like, actual villains, I think, of this time period in Paul Reiser's character. Mm-hmm. You know, the smarmy, 
like corporate executive that's more about profits than, you know, like not getting its people murdered. Sure. Um, but this, like, I, I will always love this movie more than any other of the Alien movies just because it's so, it stands up so well on its own without any foreknowledge of the franchise at all. Um, it's incredibly taut, you know, it's, it's really well paced. Um, it's got really good actors and really good performances, but it's still like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a monster movie. It's like any of the fifties monster movies, but with more of like a late seventies mentality and, you know, just more of a horror element rather than the science fiction element. So, okay. I have two questions real quick to follow up on this and we're probably finished with this. Um, one, do you think Paul Reiser will ever be mentioned on this podcast ever again? Hmm. Well, I don't know. It's possible. Hmm. We might talk about Mad About You sometime if we talk about how much I love Helen Hunt. Okay. And then I'll talk um, about how much I hate Paul Reiser. Well, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Um, the other thing is going back to the reviews for a second. And it's, um, yeah, Ebert gave it a bad review. And then when he re-reviews it in the early 2000s, he um, gives it a rave review. I mean, and then uh, Leonard Maltin does the same thing. He dismisses it as just nothing but, like, you know... Violence and gore, and to his credit, when he reviews um, the rave release um, in uh, 2014, he re-reviewed it and admitted that he was a wimp when it first came out and that scared the hell out of him. He found it too. Ups- I found it too upsetting, so I gave it a review that reflected that. 25 years later, when Scott <clears throat> tweaked and reissued it theatrically, um, I thought it was matched for, and I completely changed my review to three and a half stars. So at least he, um, Ebert never acknowledges, I'll give him all credit, at least he acknowledges that he gave it a bad review and then like looked at it again. So my question to you is this, is what do you think, is, is this part of some sort of watershed moment for horror in terms of acceptance, do you think? Or does that come later after this? In its initial release? Well, obviously it got bad reviews in its initial release, but is this, is this one of the, is this the movie... Or is it one of the movies that eventually it changed the way that critics start looking at horror to some degree? So again, like I'll say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. this um, Exorcist are definitely among movies that were kind of lambasted at first because because they were very direct in their depiction of violence and they were very upsetting to people and. People didn't know how to react to that. Like people, people love to be scared, but people don't like to feel bad. And I think that like leaving a movie feeling bad, like because you were so scared, like so affected. Um, and maybe we become desensitized to that. Well, that's, uh, let me let me maybe try to frame it differently. Then, without these, without these movies and a slow acceptance of the violence in them. We talked last or a couple weeks ago about Tarantino. Well, a couple past couple weeks we talked about Tarantino and about like Pulp Fiction and um, even Train Spotting and like those kind of movies that the depiction of violence um, or drug abuse or anything like that in those movies. A lot of people were still even in the early '90s, early mid '90s, were kind of like, "Oh, this is too much and this is you know uh, it's far too violent. It's gross." And um, so there was still some of that even then. Do you think that? those movies would even be made in the 90s if it weren't for, like, something like Alien and Texas Chainsaw and those kind of things? Do you think that they, like, are kind of some of the forerunners of, like, like allowing 
to talk to talk about that specifically, I think you're looking more at um, like from the '70s perspective, stuff like Last Tango in Paris and like John Cassavetes movies and Nicholas Rogue, who doesn't shy away from the idea of like sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Peckinpah, who you know, like almost like fetishizes the violence of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All people that you know, movies and directors that were kind of sort of outsiders at the time. And then slowly because of like people coming to appreciate, you know, them as, as artists, like they started to accept it. I don't know that horror has ever, I think that Ridley Scott became a respected filmmaker and people were more willing to go back and look with, look at like alien as an actual film as opposed to, like, just a horror movie. And The Exorcist, I think, that people, you know, looked at William Friedkin as a real filmmaker and were able to go back and look at it. You know, I mean, when I when I was a kid, I remember my parents talking about The Exorcist and how much they hated it and how my mom couldn't stand watching it. And I mean, I think that's just the prevailing, like, yeah. thought of the time. So you just see this as part of the sequence from those kind of filmmakers to what comes after? Yeah, I mean, I... Certainly there's some element that, you know, people like Tarantino are inspired by this era of film. And mm-hmm. I don't know that Tarantino's ever done anything that's truly, like, horrific. Like, even Death Proof is more just kind of a road movie than it is a, yeah. you know, like a horror movie. Yeah. Um, and it's a joke. To some yeah, terrible. Like, it, no, no, I, I'm not saying, not in the way that you think it's a joke. Yeah. I, the, 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 oh, it's a joke. The the movie itself ends up being a joke in the yeah, end, about masculinity. Sure. <clears throat> um... I don't know, like, I, I love Alien, and I think that, I think that movies like Alien and Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw and the next movie on this list certainly set the stage for wide-release films in these genres, you know, whereas it would have been, like, a grindhouse double feature-like movie at one point, like, now you could have stuff like Jacob's Ladder or The Lost Boys or Flatliners, you know, I mean, it definitely sets the table for that. Sure. But even today... There's kind of a resurgence and stuff like Hereditary and The Witch and mm-hmm. um, Babadook and It Follows and yeah. like a number of other like horror yeah. themed movies that are pretty popular among critics now. But this is like the first time where horror has been kind of accepted as it comes out. Like even stuff like Scream, which was pretty critically lauded, is sort of a parody of sure. horror genre, yeah. right? And like there's other movies. Well, that it, came was, out. it was being hit. I mean. I wonder. We'll, we'll probably someday, I'm sure, talk about that. But it, I would never talk about Scream. Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it was, I think part of it, you're right. I mean, part of it, I think the critical acclaim for that movie was how clever it was in sending up yeah. horror movies. And I think that that shows some sort of critical bias. I mean, it's almost like National Lampoon's, like, people getting murdered series or something. Which then eventually happened in the Scary Movie series, which was right, yeah. a parody of a parody. Right. Even though the screen movies work as actual horror movies, yes. but they're very meta. Yes, in the way they approach sure. their subject matter. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a postmodern take yeah. on slasher. I mean, yeah, which whatever. I mean, if anybody should be allowed to do it, it's Wes Craven. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, but anyway, I, I like so, the original screen, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's yeah. it's it's a decent movie. Mm-hmm. I just hate the fact that it like it almost validates like critics like Kerr and Malden mm-hmm. and. What yeah. they're saying in that you can't just do a straightforward horror movie and have it matter. Sure. It's got to have something else. Because, I mean, right. Wes Craven had done some, at least like four or five 
like seminal horror movies before Scream. Oh, I mean, mm-hmm. like fantastic, yeah. well crafted, yeah. like films, and then that's what people are finally willing to give him like some kind of artistic credit for. So, but yeah, so Alien, yeah, Alien and Aliens are definitely worth watching in this the series. Um, everything else is just your mileage is going to depend on how much you like the idea of aliens. Yeah, <laughs> even movies that are kind of hated in this the series, like Alien Three and Alien Resurrection. Um, Prometheus, which I know a lot of people that we know aren't big fans of, mm-hmm. and I did not enjoy the last Alien movie, whatever it was called, Covenant, maybe whatever. Yeah, th- the sequel to Prometheus. Three, I could sit through, but I wasn't a big fan. Um, four, I did not like at all. It's not good. And then I haven't watched any of the new. I mean, it's 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 pretty bad, but there's still some like, still some interesting visuals in four, yeah. and I do love that universe, so it's kind of hard yeah. for me to ever. Like fully divorce myself from any of those movies. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so we'll move on to the number one uh, movie on your top five alien movies list, which is the 1982 John Carpenter version of The Thing, starring Kurt Russell, Wilfred Brimley, T.K. Carter, Keith David. Uh, it's rated 83% by critics uh, and uh, 92% by audiences. Um, do you want to go ahead and just explain a little bit uh, about this movie? So very similar in a lot of ways to the plot of Alien. It's a group of scientists that are in an Arctic research facility. Um, Another group of scientists comes in trying to kill a dog from a helicopter. Um, The helicopter crashes. They end up dying. They end up saving the dog. And it turns out the dog is infected with the seed of like some alien thing, um, literally thing. Um, it then becomes kind of a cat and mouse movie where they realize that the alien can take other shapes and can like get inside of things, but then they don't know who is infected and who they can trust. So it becomes really like a lot of paranoia, um, till eventually, you know, Kurt Russell just kills it, I guess. But, um, Kurt Russell is amazing in this movie. Uh, like all the performances are really good. It's got a very... Like, for being an early 80s movie, it's got a very 70s vibe in terms of the way that the characters are written and the way that they're portrayed and just sort of, like, how it's shot, how it's filmed. Um, Just as claustrophobic as Alien, because it does take place in the Arctic where there's nowhere for them to go. Um, The idea of the alien, like, had been on Earth for a long time and been frozen. You know, and it was the Swedish research team or whatever they are um, that freed it. And uh, visually, incredibly impressive from a visual perspective. Um, I mean, Carpenter, in the same way that I feel that Joe Dante kind of maybe doesn't get as much respect as he should. I don't know that people look at Carpenter as being as good a filmmaker as he is. Um, And he's definitely not like a perfect filmmaker. And he's definitely had some like not good movies, but... At his best, Carpenter might be, like, the purest horror director. Like, have the most... The best grasp of what is scary and how to film a scene to heighten and maximize your tension. Mm. And even when he's showing you everything, there still is an element of uncertainty to it. Um, Rick Baker, I think, is the visual effects artist for this movie. I didn't look that up. Um, That time period, why does it make sense? brilliant like practical effects like so horrifying and realistic um and gruesome 
which I imagine is probably what leads to the 80-some percent of Rotten Tomatoes is people not being, like, a fan of that. Um, um, we'll go over it. One of Kurt Russell, like, another guy that I think is sort of underrated in a lot of ways is Russell in terms of, like, as, like, one of the preeminent actors in the 1980s. I mean, I think that he's, <clears throat> this character is Jack Burton character, you know, definitely one of the best, like, male action leads. Um, his ability to play, like, world-weary and sardonic, but also, like, motivated to survive at the same time, um, and genuinely, like, heroic beyond, like, his, his gruff exterior. I mean, it's a really good performance. Um, and that, you know, I mean, from, in the same way that Aliens is a science fiction movie on the surface, but is really a horror movie, this is also, on the surface, a science fiction movie. You know, it's based on a, like a true science fiction movie from what the fifties is the Hawks version. Yeah. Um, but just, I don't know, just like pure horror. I mean, in pure body horror, like maybe in a lot of ways, maybe inspired by Cronenberg and also like a forerunner to Cronenberg, but like ranks up with his like best movies as just being like a terrifying body horror movie in terms of like, people's flesh being distorted and this thing like being inside of and then coming out of them so yeah um so review wise um what do you think Dave Kurth all this movie he didn't like it yeah um he says that Carpenter's only official remake um well at the time I guess of Howard Hawks film turns out to be his least Hawksian effort there is no cohesion within the male group at Carter's Antarctic Research Station. When the shape-shifting monster comes in for the attack, it's every man for himself. And although the group's group members are played by familiar, well-defined character actors, the terse banality of the dialogue makes them all sound and seem alike. It's hard to tell who's being attacked and hard to care. Carpenter's direction is slow, dark, and stately. He seems to be aiming for some sort of an enveloping, novelistic kind of effect, but all he gets is heaviness. Ebert, who gave it two and a half stars, um, you know, says that it's a great barf bag movie, but asks if it's any good. He said, I found it disappointing for two reasons. One, the superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior of the scientists at that icy outpost. Characters have never been Carpenter's strong point. He says he likes his movies to create emotions in his audiences, and I guess he'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of the characters. So they, there's kind of some overlap there, I think, in terms of like lack of characterization between and, both of them. But that's, I mean, it's a horror movie, right? Yeah. Like, number one, it's five or six dudes that aren't friends necessarily. They're yeah. colleagues. They're doing a job, and they all have different jobs to do in this this place. Yeah. And then they're put into a completely almost, like, unfathomable situation. So, what are... I mean, like, what are they... One of the... There's a movie from maybe 2004 called Wolf Creek. Do you remember Wolf Creek? Yeah. And one of the biggest complaints with Wolf Creek... And I, I love Wolf Creek, like, the first one. Yeah. But it takes so long to get to the horror element because they spend so much time building these characters. That was my complaint. That it's almost just like a 40-minute movie. And I don't even mind that so much. But I can understand, like, whereas, like, you don't hold it as high as, of esteem as I do. I love the second half of the movie. Yeah, because that first part of the movie just drags so yeah. much. And, like... 
It's actually you spend so much time with them. I thought that movie that it kind of made them made me dislike the characters yeah, because they're not good characters. Well, they're right. They're not good characters, and they're not great people necessarily. Yeah, so, I mean, by the time they, it's almost like they not that they deserve to get you know. Well, there's, down some, there's some relief, right? Like at that right, point, right, you know, yeah. Like finally, right. And in this movie, I mean, that's not what Carpenter's trying to do. Yeah. And I, I think that the characters that need to have characterization and I think that's Russell and I think it's Wilford Brimley specifically mm-hmm. I think they do enough where you get characterization out of them mm-hmm. and even like they're not cookie cutter there's not like they don't all say the same lines they all have personality yeah. but it's not about building mm-hmm. like I don't need to know about their families right. or their lives it's not histories. about building motivation it's about humans surviving in a ridiculous situation yeah. like a horrifying situation and that's yeah I, I can imagine I mean, speaking for the two of them, which I probably shouldn't do, but I can imagine, I think, it's almost like they want, like, 12 Angry Men, it, like, um, inside of this horror movie, which I think is too much to do. I mean, I think you turn it into a two-hour and 20-minute movie if you try to do that. But again, it, it shows, number one, it shows a lack of appreciation for the fact that a movie can be about scaring you and still have merit. Yeah. Which, I think, you know, to your question earlier, I think that's a problem for the majority of time up until like maybe the past 10 or 15 years but also it shows a lack of understanding of what the purpose of this specific movie is you know and it's there's a lot of artistry in the way that Carpenter films this movie I mean there's a scene early on after the after the Swedes are all dead where um, uh, Russell and one of the other scientists go to the Swedish research station and the one guy, his veins are slit, and his blood is frozen, like, out of his veins. And it's it's cold, and it's blue, and it feels like... It feels like a nightmare version of Hoth, almost, like, the mm-hmm. way it's filmed. And just, like, seeing, like, the ice crystal blood, like, dripping down from this guy's, like, open veins, it's, it's beautiful, and it's horrifying, and... It's really quiet, and it builds, like, this huge sense of foreboding of what's going to happen to these people as they go back. And, like, that level of, like, artistry and command of, like, a scene to not only, like, be aesthetically pleasing and almost, like, opposite of, like, being aesthetic, but still, like, be beautiful while being, like, grotesque, and also set the stage for what's going to come in a very quiet way with almost no exposition from his characters and no over-explaining. I mean, that's brilliant. And the fact that, like, again, like, I really think the critics would not allow themselves to see artistry in horror films at this time. Number one, because most horror films lacked it. You know, I mean, you're not going to go and watch Friday the 13th Part 3 and gush over the cinematography, right? Like, that's not the point of that movie. But this movie is more than that. It's more than just watching people die it's about the resilience of human nature and like how quickly people can turn on each other when they're in a like a tense or uncertain situation and it's also about like how well do you know people like especially your colleagues and in this day and age i mean you know not to like make this too topical but we just like in this area just went through a pretty horrific situation with like a shooting at you know at a place of business and it's like which was a half mile away from here. Yeah, like, well, I mean, where I work, like, it was right, right down the road. Right. And it's like, how well do you know the people that you work with? Like, sure. how much can you trust these people that yeah. you spend every day with? When push comes to shove, like, 
who's willing to, you know, smash you in the face with a shovel because they think you got an alien inside you. Sure. I mean, it's not, not only, like, the shootings and stuff like that. I mean, it ties into a lot of the Me Too stuff as well. Like, yeah. You know? You don't, I mean... You don't always know who's who, what scumbags sexually harassing people all the sure. time. Not all of them are obvious about it. So I mean, people, somebody can seem like a really decent person, sure. to harbor some pretty dark things. So I mean, even from like a, a symbolic standpoint, and in the same way that Alien kind of, while it's an action sci-fi horror movie on the surface, has some depth. You know, the thing has some depth too, and it's got a lot of questions that. Do you need to answer them to enjoy it? No. But, like, I think the more you watch it and the more you enjoy it, like, you know, the more you can kind of find, like, some hidden some hidden depth to it. Um, but just as, a, just as a standalone film, as a horror slash sci-fi slash action movie, it's really fantastic. Um, again, some of my favorite practical effects of all time. Yeah. I would just want you to bring up one more piece of criticism to have you address real quick, because um, I think it's an interesting question. Is Vincent Camby of the New York Times says that uh, Mr. Carpenter has demonstrated that he can make good, comparatively plain, old flash, old-fashioned scare movies such as Halloween and effective suspense thrillers like Escape from New York. But he seems to lose his own head when he combines two or more genres, as he did in The Fog, and then he does again here. Um, so he, I guess the criticism is that when he sticks to one genre. Um, He's much better than he does when he tries to combine genres. I'm assuming here sci-fi and horror is the idea. What are the genres combined in the fog? Um, pirates and horror. The pirate genre. What are your top five pirate movies? Seafaring. Uh, first Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's a Pippi Longstocking fighting the pirates movie. I can't remember what it's called. I really like that one a lot. Uh huh. There's pirates with an exclamation point. Mm. I love that movie. Probably a terrible movie, but from a nostalgic standpoint. Um, Hook, like for as terrible as I think as that movie really is, like I have a lot of nostalgic affection for Hook. I hate Hook. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of people do, but I know there's something about the way it looks. Like I just like the look of that movie. Yeah. Um. I don't know. We're just one of the pirate movies. That's, I don't know. that's all I got. I don't know. Some kind of um, Errol Flynn maybe movie. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's that Errol Flynn one where um, that, yeah. the the black flag or whatever. I sure. <laughs> um, it was a facetious question. I wasn't actually yeah. expecting an answer. <laughs> if, I, if I put some thought into it, <laughs> I could give you some. I love the idea. I'm not. Of I'm not a fan of pirates. That's see. I'm not. See, I, so I, do. I That's I, why. Yeah, I like. That's why you didn't get that. I was. Yeah, like that stuff. The that Assassin's Creed game is coming out in a couple weeks, where you're like on the boat and attacking other boats. That's that's exciting. I mean, is he is it is it is he combining some sort of like small town drama with the horror elements? No, maybe it's I mean, just a horror movie. Okay. It's, nothing, it's ghosts coming out of the water. It's it's, it's it, there's no combination of genres. This even isn't even a combination of genres because. This movie is not a science fiction movie because there's no science to it. The only science you get is this thing was frozen in the snow. Which and it's presumably comes from another planet. Yeah, it's from, it's from outer space. Yeah. And beyond that, it's just we got to survive, you know? Right. Like, yeah. stuff like, like Silent Running or something where it's about, like, science and has, like, a plot on top of the science. Or, um... Close Encounters, you know what I mean? Or even like E.T., which is more about the physiology and interaction of this alien with humans. Mm -hmm. And there's a story built on that. Like, this movie is a straight... This is survival art. Like, one of the first maybe... Like, this and Texas Chainsaw early on in Alien 
like survival horror films. Okay. Well, who, who, I think, I think who said that? Vincent Canby. No. I don't like Vincent Canby. I just who do like an Alice. <laughs> I um I do like that uh, the only thing I about like about Vincent Canby like a lot is that he um he always puts Mr. in front of people's names, which I, yeah. which, I, which I find. Very, very polite. It is, yes, yeah. Um, it's so. actually, no, because it sounds just, Mr. Carpenter. <laughs> snooty Vincent Canby. Get out of here. Uh, can turn a phrase, though. Yeah. Um, um, so can Dave Kerr. But it that's, 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 but Dave, Dave Kerr can only turn a phrase and hate, it seems, I think. And uh, yeah, um, Canby is... We're kindred spirits in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so any last thoughts about the thing no I, you okay. know there was a pseudo remake slash pseudo prequel that came out what like 10 years ago that's terrible yeah, yeah, right. um, there's actually a video game adaptation of it from the late 90s that while like control wise it's not that fun to play mm-hmm. is actually like really good yeah um, it's like a PlayStation 1 era game or maybe PS2 um, if you've never seen it it's a really enjoyable film um, if you like horror movies, then it's it'll definitely hold your attention. Um, personally, I I find it to be it's it's one of my favorite horror films of all time. Um, it's one of the one of the movies that I can go back and watch, and I I probably go back and watch it every few years, I man, on DVD. <clears throat> um, and I always really enjoy it, and I always find it to be really impressive. And again, maybe the best practical effects. This and like maybe Hellraiser of that era. Um, just like fully like allows you to suspend your disbelief and actually feel like you're watching these horrific things happen. So just really amazing, fantastic movie. Okay. Um, so that's pretty much the end of the show. I just want to remind everybody to please, um, if you have any ideas for us, any lists that you want to hear, please contact us at, uh, two guys, five movies. That is the number numbers two and five, two guys, five movies at gmail.com. You can email us. You can also follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Uh, next week, we'll be uh, coming to you with the top five most depressing movies of all time. Um, so Frank and I will be talking about those movies. And then in October, um, we will uh, be focusing a little bit more on horror um, to celebrate the uh, Halloween. And um, we will also be bringing you a... Uh, uh, a slightly different thing outside the top five list um, for the first time where we will be um, uh, bringing in a third person to uh, combat Frank in terms of what their favorite movie is um, in terms of a specific genre. I don't know if there's going to be much combat. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think it depends on who... Uh, I, th- I think it depends on the third person. Like on the third man. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I don't mind somebody else having a different opinion. It's just not going to be my opinion. Right. And they're yeah. wrong. Yeah. I, I think it depends on the personality of the person that is putting out their movie and Personal, their opinion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it's going to be their tone <laughs> and their. Um, um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's what we have planned coming up for. Um, <laughs> You know, next uh, four or five weeks. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Um, and have a great night. Have a good week. <laughs>